0: Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit SoullistChurch.com. Uh, if you're taking notes, uh, the title of the message this morning is simply this. It's the bread of life. The bread of life. You know, one of the big themes in the Gospel of John is all the various perceptions about the person of Jesus just like today in Jesus's time there was a wide range of perspectives as to who the person of Jesus was last week we confronted a few false perceptions you remember that these sort of false ideas and misconceptions that we can have of Jesus projecting on him who we think he should be or who we expect him to be rather than letting him reveal who he really is uh, that, that's been most of the focus, and we'll continue to see that in John. In fact, in the next chapter, there's a simple verse that's pretty profound. It says that there ends up becoming a ton of people, uh, a great division amongst a ton of people regarding Jesus, just all sorts of division. Jesus Christ is easily the most polarizing figure in all of history. There is no one who is creator, a wider dividing line, no no uh, president okay? No, no no, dictator, No, um, whether famous or infamous, there's nobody that compares to the divide that Jesus Christ has caused, and not just the black and white divide. I mean, it's like a pie chart of different opinions, whether it's the Muslim opinion or the, the, the more new age spiritist opinion um, or the more, whatever it may be, the Mormon, there, there's so many different religions surrendered, uh, surrounded around the person of Jesus. I think one of the most important things that we can do ...as those that are following Jesus... ...in a world with varied opinions of Jesus... ...is to ask, what does Jesus say about himself... Right Like maybe we should let Jesus speak for himself, a lot of opinions about him, but what did Jesus have to say about himself well that 's where we find ourselves not only here in John six but over the next uh, seven or eight chapters, Jesus is going to begin to speak for himself. You can almost call chapter six through about fifteen, you could call it Jesus according to Jesus. What does Jesus have to say about himself, and the way that Jesus declares who he is in the next few chapters you 're going to notice is through these seven i am statements seven things that Jesus has to say about who he is all, you know up to this point chapter six, all these different opinions and perspectives about him, but Jesus has some definitive statements to make about himself there are these seven Specific I am statements uh, you 'll see them here in John six we'll see the first one, but here 's all seven of them here in John six, Jesus will say, "I am the bread of life." in chapter eight we'll look at that next week. Jesus will say, "I am the light of the world." chapter ten he'll say, "I am the door he'll follow that with, "I am the good shepherd." In chapter eleven, after raising Lazarus from the dead, he will say, "I am the resurrection and the life." Chapter fourteen, he will say, "I am the way, the truth." And the life in chapter fifteen, he will say, "I am the true vine." So that's where our study is going to zero in now for the remainder of our time in John. Uh, what does Jesus have to say about himself? Now, w- what we're going to notice with these statements, and what we need, what we need to bring into this study, is not just a look at what Jesus is generally saying, because any of us could say, "Like I am this, I'm a mother, I'm a carpenter, I'm an accountant." We c- we can kind of give our own I'm statements, but we need to see the context that Jesus is making these statements in. What's what's important is, as, as important as who Jesus says he is, is the fact that he's saying, I am. I am is not just this statement of, you know, this is what I'm like. Jesus in that culture was saying that he is the God of the Old Testament by making this claim. Remember, this is the way that God revealed himself to Moses. Moses being sent by God into Egypt, let my people go, that whole thing. Remember that? Prince of Egypt, great movie, all right? Moses says, okay, God, who, who do I say sent me? If they ask me what your name is, what do I say? He says, tell them I am that I am sent you. Moses is like, okay, that works. I, can, I am. Who sent you? I am sent me. I am that I am. Now, this is where you get from this name that's so rich in meaning. Uh, we did a, a book study on this a few years ago, a book called God Has a Name that, that breaks down this name. We get the word Yahweh and, and Jehovah from this word, from this name. Uh, But again, the idea is uh, that this is the very person of God. And so Jesus, uh, remember in John chapter 8, Jesus, um, one of the the sort of uh, pinnacles of the religious leaders' animosity towards Jesus is John 8 when they almost stone him. Because Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So this is not like projecting on Jesus, like, oh, I think Jesus is saying he's divine, that he's the God of the Old Testament. This is from the very mouth of Jesus. Um, so when Jesus gives these seven I am statements, it's, it's more than just general declarations. It is a, an acknowledgment that Jesus has of himself as being the God of the Old Testament. All right. So that's what we're looking at. Now, what's, what's interesting with each of these I am statements is that they give this fuller understanding of God. Jesus is revealing God to us. And what what we're finding is in these revelations of God through Jesus, we're finding this, that God is all that we need him to be. That is great. Here's what great news is. Ready? God is who he is. No matter what we want God to be, it's much better for him to be who he is. Because who he is is all we need him to be. Amen? So Jesus will say, are are you hungry? Well, I'm the bread of life. Are you lost and you need your way back to God? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Are you needing access to God? I'm the door. Are you struggling to bear fruit in your life and you just feel like sin has a hold on you? I'm the vine. Abide in me. I mean, he just goes on with these incredible expressions. And then here in this chapter, we have Jesus as the bread of life. So, Mike, my slides are acting a little funny. So let me see. Did I get it to work? Yeah, I did. Cool. All right. Technology. Um, Jesus never said I am like the iPad of life or anything, but that would have been awesome, too. More modern. All right. Uh, bad joke. Let's, let's go to the Bible. All right, He'll J- be better off. John 6. John 6. Okay. So here in this passage, Jesus makes that first I am statement. I am the bread of life. And as I was studying this, and, and usually what I do is I go to a passage and I let God, I want to know what is God saying. I don't want to superimpose what I want to say upon the passage. We start, we sit back, we go, God, we want to open our ear to what you've revealed. Um, and then I usually find my way outlining the section, trying to kind of give a, a, some scaffolding around the, the theme. But as I began to do that, I found like the more I tried to outline this passage, the more I was removing the power that it contains. And so I have one point today. It's that Jesus is the bread of life. And it'll be nice because I usually only have one point and I finish two in the end anyway. So um, at one point, realistically today, Jesus is the bread of life. And let's see what that actually means. What does Jesus mean by saying that he is the bread of life? Well, uh, here in John 6, what we have in the first 12 verses, or rather 13 verses, is we have uh, one of Jesus' most profound and public miracles. Jesus multiplies some fish and loaves, a, a kid's pretty much a kid's lunchable. He takes and he multiplies it to provide for five thousand people. They're out in the wilderness, uh, out there in the land of in the area of Galilee. And Jesus, he does this miracle to provide for them. Remember, out you know, there's not like a bodega out there in the wilderness, right? Can I get four number threes, ten number eights? You know, it's so like the, at the driving range, you ever been, or at the golf course, you know, what that's like to be out there. And then you see that that. uh that, what is that called? The beverage card or whatever rolls up. There wasn't one of those you know, back then uh, to get some, some sustenance. And so uh, Jesus, he takes what doesn't seem to be enough, and this is what God always does, and he makes it more than enough. He provides for this multitude of people. It says 5,000 people, and that doesn't include the, the women and children. And he so provided for them that it actually tells us in verse 12 that they were able to eat as much, verse 11 says, as much as they wanted. All you can eat. This is like Ichiyami. You ever been there, the sushi place? I'm giving you new food restaurants, by the way, like every week, all right? Uh, new spots. So, you know, all, you ever been there where you're like, I did the all you can eat, and I ate more than I could eat, actually. And so that, I mean, talk about provision. So much so that they were, it says, verse 12, that they, were, they ate till they were filled, that word literally means gluttoned. Have you ever eaten till you were gluttoned before? We were like, that was so good, and I hate myself at the same time, right? That's, that's literally where they are right now. They are full. Now, notice what happens. So, Jesus provides fish and loaves, multiplies it so much so that they had leftovers. And verse 14, look at verse 14, tells us then those men, when they saw this sign that Jesus did, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. They recognized that this miraculous sign pointed to Jesus' identity. They said, this is the prophet that Moses spoke about. Verse 15 says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So, so, so the Jewish people go, wow, this guy, he's hes He's pretty convenient to have around. We were all hungry, and look what he did for us. I wonder what he could do as an elected official. I wonder what he could do in government. I mean, these are poor, peasant, uh, Jewish people under Roman oppression. Wow, then Jesus shows up, and they're like, this guy would make a great king. They're wondering, do his miracles scale? You know, if he gets in, does it become 50,000? You know, how much can this guy do? They had a very self-serving view of Jesus. Let's make him king. Now, this is uh, Israel's history. Remember Saul. Saul was the king that the people wanted. We, we, we got to have a king. We got to have a king to give us what we need. God, you're not enough. That's what we see with Saul. We see the nation's destruction when they start trying to execute their own will, detach from God, and they try to use politicians to accomplish it. It's a great contrast because. You have Saul that leads to a, a, a horrible. His personal life is a great downfall. But then you have David that shows up. And the Bible says that God shows up with David. He goes, now I'm going to pick a king for myself. Okay, Now I'm going to pick David. He's after my own heart. But we see kind of the same thing here in this passage. The people going, Jesus, you should be our king. And we'll call you king, but we really want you to be our servant. We, we want to use you and your power and your position to give us what we need. Now, what an interesting By the way, what an interesting verse. They were about to make Jesus king. Interesting, right? Why? Because Jesus is a king, right? And he's not any old king of any region, any city, any state. The scriptures describe Jesus as the king of kings. He is the only king, 1 Timothy says. So so you can't crown a king who already has a crown, first and foremost. The problem wasn't that they didn't see him as as royal, uh, royal. He was... Uh, nor was it that they didn't see him as a prophet. They were just missing what his kingdom was like. They had a false idea about what his kingdom was for. You see, this king who was also a prophet, he was also a priest. Jesus came to lay down his life for for, for the needs of the world, to mediate between man and God as our great high priest. And so missing that, Jesus notices that they're they're trying to elevate him. Jesus is not on earth to campaign for politics here. He's here to do the will of his father. So when he notices that they're trying to crown him and enthrone him for their purposes, it says he departs again to the mountain by himself alone. This is Jesus' custom. In times of disarray, Jesus would get alone with his father. In times of success, actually, In times when things were going well, Jesus would get alone with his father. Jesus was never moved by the demands and the needs of people around him. He was actually the best servant to people around him because he got his instructions from the father. I think we need to take a page out of Jesus' book there, don't we? We become a much better dad, mom, husband, wife, when we're not just letting the needs pull us apart around us, but we're able to prioritize our lives based on a relationship with God. You know what I'm saying? So that's for Jesus. He goes and he gets alone with the Father. Now, in verses 16 all the way down through 21, uh, we studied this passage a few weeks ago. I'm not going to read through it. But the disciples, they go to find Jesus. They get on a boat. They're stuck in a storm. These disciples, boats and storms. Okay, They just love getting in storms in their boats. And Jesus shows up, classically, walking on the water. All right, and uh, I was talking to Judah about this the other day, and he was just, he had heard it before, but I was kind of describing it a little bit more, and he started imagining Jesus like walking up and down the waves and just how epic that was, and he was just like looking at the pool as I was telling him. And uh, so just an epic moment. He comes to the disciples. Matthew tells us that at this moment, Peter, what does he try to do? He tries to barefoot water ski with Jesus. He gets out of the boat. Just kidding. Gets out of the boat and says, can I come to you? He takes his eyes off off Jesus, begins to sink. Now, it tells us that they end up willingly receiving Jesus into their boat. And verse 21 ends, and it says this, that the boat was at land immediately where they were going. So, listen, I just know what we have here, but it seems like Jesus has some means of transportation to get around that's like otherworldly. He's able to just, in the midst of a crowd, depart and go to a mountain, shows up on the water, walking on the water to the disciples. He gets in the boat, and then immediately, they're where they were supposed to go. I don't know. That beats Tesla, any sort of automotive system they have. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool uh, situation there. self yeah. So anyway, now it tells us this. Verse 22 says, on the following day. So Jesus dips out with his disciples. It says that the people were standing on the other side of the sea and they saw that there was no boat there except the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. So they want to make Jesus king, but they notice that there's no boats and G- except the one the disciples were getting into leaving and Jesus wasn't there. They're going, where's Jesus? So now there's this massive manhunt for Jesus. All it tells us is that they begin to look for him, but it doesn't tell us how many people. It could have been upwards of thousands of people now are getting in boats for this massive manhunt to find Jesus. It's this big game of hide and seek with Jesus. Look at verse 24. When the people, therefore, verse 24, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So now they're in Capernaum. That's where Jesus is. They're going to find him in the temple. So they get on their boats. Just picture these crowds of people. I found him. Someone goes, I found Jesus. And everyone's getting off their boats. We found Jesus. we got to make him king. And it says this. It says in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get here? That was fast. Was that like miraculous teleportation? Like, when did you come here? In other words, we've been looking for you. They sought him and they found him. They said, Jesus, where have you been? Jesus answered them. Notice this. And he said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw the signs. He kind of calls them out here. He says, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled interesting. Jesus says, "Yeah, you found me, but you've been seeking me for all the wrong reasons." Isn't that interesting? He says, "You're not here because of the signs." Now, there's been signs that Jesus has performed. John outlines a handful of them. And but each of those signs are not just to make our lives and those who are benefited by them more comfortable. That's a part of it. Jesus' compassion but each of the signs of Jesus exists to display the glory of Jesus, okay? Um, What Jesus does in our lives exists to be a rope that leads us back to the greatness of who he is. Everything that God does in our lives is there for us to say, wow, God. You ever said wow, God before? Like, wow, God. I pray you've had a wow, God moment in your life. Whether it's God saving you, rescuing you, blessing you. Maybe you you deserve something and you didn't get it circumstantially or realistically, whatever that may be. But we have these wow God moments in life and they exist for us to be in awe, listen, not of what Jesus can do for me, but of who he is. Wow. Jesus goes, "That's, that's not why you're here. You're not seeking me for me. These people, if you could think about it this way, it's like they were seeing Jesus as a means to something greater. He says, you're only here because you want a free lunch. (laughs) You're here because your bellies are full and you, you look at me as kind of like this convenient store. You look at me as sort of like this vending machine that exists to accomplish your will, to provide for you, to make you secure. You're not after me, you're after what I can give you, which is not after me at all. You're after material things. You're seeking me for the wrong reasons. You, you just want a free lunch. You want a handout. Now, this finds its way in, into so many different areas of our lives. I was led to ask this question. Maybe you could ask this. Like, right now in your life, here's, a, here's the first question. I think it's important to go, am I seeking Jesus? And Be careful that you, that you don't go, no, because I've already found him. I found him. There's something about these people that are, are admirable, and it's the, the, the extent that they go to find Jesus. And I think that's one of the most important characteristics of our relationship with God. Constantly, regularly seeking Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, let's turn that into like a marriage relationship. That wouldn't work so well in a marriage relationship, right? Where you're like, I'm not going to search for you, honey, anymore. I'm not going to be after you because I already got you. He who finds a wife... Finds a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. Already found you. Don't need to seek you. Don't need to pursue you. No, of course not, right? A healthy relationship is based on, on, on finding someone and then continuing to pursue that person. I find that all of the, the strains that Brittany and I experience in our marriage, it's, if I look in internally, it's usually because I'm pursuing other things at the expense of her. Rather than pursuing her. And the more kids there are, Right? The more things there are to do, the harder it is to pursue your spouse. Can I say this? How much of that is true with God? You ever found like you were seeking everything in life except Jesus? And there's a time in your life where you pursued him, you sought him, you knew him, you were walking with him. Now, there's something admirable about these people going, we're, we're going to get into boats to go find Jesus. We're seeking him. But here's another question. That's the first question. Are you seeking Jesus? But here's another question. Why? Or what for? Why are you here? Why are you at church? Why are you seeking the Lord? Could it be that sometimes we're actually after Jesus for other reasons than finding him? But we just want what he can do for me materially. We, we, we know there's principles in the Bible about how you could know, build, your, build your equity and, and do all these incredible things and, and be a successful person in life. But let's, let us not fall into the, tem- the temptation of these people that missed who Jesus was. The greatest prize to find Jesus is to find what we're looking for. Uh, and this can make its way into a lot of different spheres. You have like the prosperity gospel uh, extent of this that, that basically says that Jesus exists to make you healthy and wealthy. That's why he came to earth, to give you everything that you, you want. And, and to that... We find ourselves in a dangerous place because then Jesus is only as worthy of my love as he's taking care of my circumstances. Or I'm the person that's wrong with my circumstances. I don't have enough faith or whatever it may be. But Jesus is the prize. They weren't seeking him for him, they were seeking him for what he could give them. And notice why. Verse 27. The root of this was verse 27 Do not labor for food which perishes. But labor instead for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on them. So, so are you seeking Jesus? If so, why? Could it be that you're after actually not him, but what he could give you, these material things? And, and, And Jesus says, the reason why you're doing that is because you're laboring in life in the wrong direction. Like, I see that too. Like, even people who still believe in this prosperity gospel garbage who believe that like literally Jesus came to make us healthy and wealthy, all that is is materialism, right? It's it's idolatry. It's laboring for earthly things. And Jesus says, that's your problem. You're laboring for things that are going to, he says this, to perish. It's a great question. What am I working for in life? What am I after? What am I laboring for? Literally, what am I working for? Like, why do I go to work, right? What am I exhausting my energy for in life? Is it for something temporary or is it for something eternal? Jesus himself is, is going to describe later on in Matthew, he's going to describe that we shouldn't lay up our treasures on earth where everything is going to perish, everything's going to fade away. Why waste our energy laboring for something that's not going to last? You have a contrast here between the temporary and the eternal. What are you laboring for? Are you laboring for that, that dime? Are you laboring for a reputation? Are you laboring for success? This, this brings us all the way back to the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Where Solomon's like, I've worked for every, and I've, I've achieved every and anything under the sun, and it doesn't work. It all fades away, but eternity lasts forever. Am I laboring towards eternity? Do to I have an eternal picture, an eternal mindset in all that I'm building? That's what Jesus says, don't labor for food that perishes, but labor for food that endures to everlasting life, eternal life. Notice this, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on them. So he's like, you're after the wrong food. You've got got to be after this different kind of food, eternal food, that I'm going to give you. Now, verse 28 says, then they said to him, what then shall we do that that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's verse 29. So Jesus goes, don't labor for temporary, pursue the eternal. And they go, okay, we we don't want to pursue this earthly food. We want to pursue the heavenly stuff, the eternal stuff. They go, okay, what kind of works, I love this, what do we need to do then to earn it? So they go, what kind of works do we need to do to get to the eternal? And Jesus says, this is the work. I love that. They, say a plur- they ask a plural question. What are the works? All right, what's the laundry list that God has for me to be accepted? What are the things that when I show up to Heaven's Gate, I got to have these things done? What are the works? Okay, what is the percentage of church attendance, right? Okay, how, many- how much Bible reading a year? How many good things do I have to do? All right, what sins can I do and what are the ones I, sh- I shouldn't do? Like, Which ones can I do, though, you know? Like, let me get the list. I want to be good enough. What are the works that I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus goes, no, it's not plural. It's singular. He goes, this is the work. What are the works? No, here's the work. Believe. Isn't that awesome? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say that this is the only work that we contribute to being accepted by God? And it's a work that he works in us to believe on Jesus. You see, um, when we stand before God one day, he's not going to look at our works. He's going to look at your work. Did you believe Jesus? Did you trust in Jesus? Was he your savior? Now, can I say that this actually is work? I think for me, I'm learning this. The hardest thing for me to genuinely do in life is believe the gospel. Like, actually believe that I'm saved by grace through faith. It's so hard because it's counter everything. Everything in me and everything around us is, is a system of getting, you know, out what you put in. Earning your wage. Avoiding consequence. Not going to jail. Be a good person. Whatever it is, we have entire systems built around performance and wage. So it's a hard thing to say, um, here's what you do to be right with God. You let someone else do it for you. What, what are the works I need to do? Trust in Jesus' works. Jesus goes to a cross, and he, he, on that cross, he becomes the sin that we carry so that we can become righteousness through him. It's called imputed righteousness that comes through faith. It's this alien righteousness. It's not a righteousness that is the product of your goodness, but it's a righteousness that we receive because of Jesus' goodness. It's imputed. It's given to us. It's like a garment that we put on that Jesus earned, and it simply comes through faith. Sola fide, only faith. It's amazing. This, this is work. Now, it's been said um, we are saved by works, It's just the works of another. It's Jesus' work. So are you trusting? What are the works that you're doing? Is it the singular work of trusting in what Jesus has done? I love that Jesus himself says that. And so look at verse 30. Now, their response to this is an interesting question. They said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Okay, Jesus, we're ready to believe you. What sign are you ready to perform? Jesus is like, you need another sign. What sign? How about, how's your belly? Are you still full? Where did, how about that sign? Okay, is that, like, that's pretty obvious. That, that sign should have uh, done it all. It reminds me of this Instagram account, dude with a sign. Have you seen this? This guy stands on the side of the road and he makes like these obvious statements like guac shouldn't be extra, stuff like that, like a Chipotle. Like, it's just like, hey, look at the sign. All right. And it's not, it's nothing new, but it's like, yeah, yeah. One of them is like, don't post um, the entire concert in your story, in your Instagram story. Like, we don't want to see 30 clips of the concert in like that looks like it was filmed on a potato, okay? Like, we'll go on YouTube and watch it. But it's like, the point is, it's like, Captain Obvious. Like, oh, that's stuff I'm thinking about. And, And they're going, Jesus, we need a sign. He's like, you don't need another sign. What you have is sufficient to trust me. In fact, if you... Did get another sign, it wouldn't do for you what you think it's going to, right? We talked about this last week. Signs and wonders are never enough to sustain faith. It's got to be the person of God himself. It's got to be who he is. What sign will you perform? And they go, Jesus, you know, our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, and Jesus is like, yeah, I just did that for you. Like, I just provided, just as, as God provided manna for Israel in the wilderness... Jesus is like, I just pretty much did that for you. They're kind of trying to like manipulate Jesus into blessing them more. Like we want another multiplied lunchable. Come on. all right. Verse 32 says, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. That wasn't Moses, but my father. It was God who provided that for you, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, notice this, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life. To the world. Now this is an interesting statement. Here's where Jesus begins to say, here's the bread of God that you need. It's me. It's he who comes down from heaven. Now Jesus is saying two interesting things here. He is first saying that he is the bread that they need. But notice what he said. He's also saying that he has come down from heaven. That's interesting. This is uh, described as Jesus' preexistence. That's the idea that Jesus didn't come into existence at his conception miraculously in the womb of Mary. But remember we saw it earlier, before Abraham was, Jesus was. Jesus preexisted all things. He's the one through which all things were created. So Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he didn't come into existence. He entered history. That's a pretty amazing thought. In fact, it's going to stumble some of the religious leaders later. They're going to be like, you, isn't this guy Joseph's son? What are you talking about coming into the world? What is he talking about? All right. Well, Jesus says that here. And they say to him, Lord, this bread, give it to us always. Verse 34. This is, uh, isn't this reminiscent of the woman at the well? Okay, Jesus is using an earthly element to display a spiritual principle. Okay, it's a, he's about to turn up the heat, too, and get. it's going to seem real literal when he talks about himself needing to be eaten as bread. But, but this is spiritual, right? It's a spiritual point. Same thing with the woman at the well. Hey, you need living water, me, to satisfy you. And the woman goes, G- I need, give me the water. I want the water. And they say the same thing. Give it to us always. And Jesus goes, no, it's not a thing that you need to be given to always. It's not like you need to regularly pray a prayer for God to forgive you of your sins. And if you, pray, if you rededicate your life to God enough, if you eat enough of the gospel bread, maybe he'll accept you. No, it's not a give this all. It's not a consistent thing. He says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Look, notice this. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. No, no. It's, it's you eat it once and you're set for eternity. You eat it once and you're satisfied forever. Eternal satisfaction, unlike anything else in this world. Only Jesus can satisfy us in a moment that can last for eternity. A satisfaction that that doesn't run out. You know, it gets depleted. Like, oh, Lord, I need to try the Lord again. I'm losing satisfaction, you know. Like, Like, he's some kind of experience. No, who he is satisfies. Never hungry again. He says, but, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Notice that. Like, we haven't even seen him, and, and we believe. These people are seeing him, and they don't believe. Verse 37 says, all, notice this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but I'll raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise it up at the last day. So, so Jesus is speaking about the need to trust in him, to believe on him for eternal life, to be saved, to have eternal life. He's using it through the illustration of eating of him as this bread that gives us life, eternal, eternal life. And here, as he's talking about this, he goes, you guys don't even believe. You're not eating the bread. You're not trusting in me. And then he gets into this really interesting doctrinal response. And he creates this almost, for a lot of us, this dilemma. First thing he says is, if anyone comes to me, anyone, that's the best thing about the gospel is how um, inclusive the gospel is. People are like, Christianity is so exclusive. No, no. Whosoever is pretty inclusive, isn't it? Like, are you a whosoever? No, I'm a whatsoever. Ah, darn it. No, we're all, anyone, any any human being is is a whosoever in the eyes of God, uh, created in God's image. Whosoever. He says, if anyone comes to me, I'm not going to cast you away. Ever felt like you didn't want to come to Jesus because you were afraid of whether or not he would receive you? That fear is not from Jesus. Jesus has come to me. I will never cast you away. I'll bring you in. So so notice the the call to the response, come to me, come close to me. But also notice there's a a statement here about God's sovereignty. You see that? He said he 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 put it pretty implicitly, he says, explicitly rather, he says, um, all that the Father gives me, verse 37, will come to me. Isn't that interesting? All that the Father gives me. Will come to me. So what we have here is, Mike, you want to throw up that slide of, man, of God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. So what you have here is this almost paradox that's created. On one hand, Jesus talks about God's sovereignty. That God, um, in his omniscience, in his foreknowledge, in his sovereignty, uh, there, there's nothing that happens outside of his knowing and counsel. Otherwise, he would cease to be God. What makes God God is He's never learned anything. Like, oh that, oh they got saved? Good, I can okay. Like nothing's ever nothing's ever occurred to God. You know, what I'm saying? You know God's never said this. He never said, you know, I just thought of something. Um, he's never said that. He's all knowing, and and he's he's sovereign. He's sovereign over salvation. All that the Father gives me. So these, there, there's words in, in the scripture that stumble a lot of us. But I'm not, I'm not talking about a certain ist or an ism here. I'm just talking about the Bible. The Bible uses words like predestined, foreknown. Romans 8 describes it in detail. That there's this thing called election where God chooses. It's, it's sovereign. God is sovereign over it. Now, um, it's interesting. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was asked about this. Like, Charles Spurgeon was... Um, definitely believed in the fact that God saves people because he's sovereign and he chooses to save them. And someone asked Spurgeon, um, like if you believe that God is sovereign over salvation, why preach the gospel? Like why are we evangelizing if God's just going to save who he's going to save? And Spurgeon goes, well imagine if if, uh, I'm going fishing at my local lakes fishing hole spot. And I go down to the, uh, the guy that I rent the boat from and I say, hey are the fish biting? And he goes, eh. He's like, I'll fish. But imagine if, if the person in the boat says, you're going to catch 5,000 fish today. You're going to fish, right? So can I say that's why we share the gospel? Because God is sovereign. God's sovereignty doesn't mean we don't share the gospel. It's a reason too. Like, oftentimes the problem is this. We think we're the ones that are going to save people, right? I got to get them. No, no, no. We, we got to testify to the gospel, Amen. We've got to proclaim Christ, and we've got to trust the Spirit. It's God's work. Uh, Spurgeon goes on to say that it's the same sun that melts the, the, the ice, also hardens the clay. It's God who does it. But, but notice this. There's also man's responsibility on this hand. Jesus says that God's going to give me those that will come to me, but if anyone comes to me. right? It's almost like, okay, so... So God chooses people to be saved. So right now you're going, how do I become a chosen one? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Be saved? How? Trust in him. All right. Now we, we gotta be careful when we create these, like you like build on top of theologies with like you build it, you build it, you get like higher and higher, and you get to this point where you're like, you know, are you a, You're you're probably a non-chosen person. Like there's people that actually think these things, like, no, it's all grace, but God is sovereign. Yet man is responsible. It's been called two parallel lines that only meet at the mind of God. And I I jive to that. Um, some of you are like, Andrew, which is are you? Are you Calvinist? Are you I actually I've been coming to this church this long, determining whether or not I'm gonna stay dependent on that reason. That's a bad reason, okay? Now, do we teach God's word? Do we trust God's word? That's one thing. For me, listen, um, I would never be an Arminianist that that believes that it's all man's will to be saved because then you rob God's sovereignty. There's a sense in which I struggle with the full points of Calvinism because I don't want to rob man's... I don't want to rob anyone. I'm just here. I don't want to steal from anyone, okay? I don't want to rob man. I don't want to rob God. All right? I don't want to rob God's word. Here's the truth. God is sovereign over salvation, and every man will stand before God responsible with what they did with Jesus. You know, it's like you can see certain things in, in certain dimensions, or you can't see certain things in lower dimensions that you can see in higher dimensions. There's certain shapes, there's certain figures. I heard it described as like a triangle. I mean, imagine someone saying that I see that that triangle is also a circle. You're going to go, wait, no, it's not. It's got three angles. But in a higher dimension, looking down, maybe it does look like a circle. There, there's been pictures of that. And the idea is like some of the things in God's word, it seems like it's come from a higher dimension. And I just want to say this. If God were small enough to fit into our brains, he wouldn't be big enough to believe in. He is who he is because he's sovereign in the way that he is. And if you have any issues with that, contact John. Okay. Um, Verse 41. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So Jesus is now, now they're going, he's not, by the way, they're not complaining because Jesus is calling himself bread. They're fine with that. Oh, he's bread. That's cool. All right? They're complaining because he's, come, he's saying, I've come down from heaven. And they go, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is, he, that, how is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now, I love here that Jesus has an opportunity to say, no, I am not the son of Joseph. I am the son of God. But notice Jesus is like cool, calm, collected peace. Jesus has no problem proclaiming who he is, but Jesus is not defensive. Don't you love that? There's a good balance there. Confident in who you are, but not like, no, you're wrong about me, Okay. I'm more than, no, he doesn't do that. Look what he says. He's like, he's just kind of like, verse 24, don't murmur among yourselves. Which is interesting. In Exodus, when God provided the manna, what did they do? They murmured. And here's some more murmuring, which I'm convinced that murmuring, like what is that? It's literally making the noise murmur. I just really think that's what it is. It's going, you know, I've, in the Greek, it, no. Um, don't murmur, complain among yourselves. No one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws him, listen. I'm here to proclaim who I am, but I don't need to do a bait and switch, water this thing down, make you happy to come to me. If God wants you to believe in me, you're going to believe in me. The Father's doing His thing. I'm not. I'm not here to be all defensive. I just trust God. Um, this is called, you could throw this next up, this word is called the doctrine of pervenient grace. This is a, an idea that Jesus throws up here. Uh, it's this idea that Tozer unpacks in his book, The Pursuit of God. And, and the doctrine of prevenient grace that Jesus describes is, is this idea that before I could ever seek God to save me, God must first have sought me. Okay, How many of us know this, that God is not lost, needing to be found? I found the Lord. Where, where was he? Now I get that idea, you find favor with God. But we're the ones that are lost. We're the ones that are dead in sin. We need, an, we need intervention. Jesus says, to come to me, you need the Father. By the way, can I tell you, that's the best thing you could do. That's the best thing you could pray for people that don't. Aren't like They're like, I'm not all about the Lord. I don't, I don't really know if I believe in Jesus. Just pray for God to, to work in their heart. I, I, I'm i confident, I'm confident that, that they're, one of the, the main reasons why I am walking with Jesus today with an eternity ahead of me Saved through the the grace of Jesus is because I had a mom who was committed to pray for me. Committed. Like committed means when you're praying against all odds. And everything around you has given you every reason to stop praying and just kind of sit back. No, that's when we need to pray more. Amen? That's where we need to lean and trust in who God is. Uh, It's the miracle of salvation. Not that people can get their lives together, but that God could save anyone. Look at us. All right? It's the Father that does it, stirs the hearts. He says, don't murmur. Um, skip down to verse 47. I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and now they're dead. That, that, that bread that you, you want me to just give you another handout? Jesus doesn't give us what we want because oftentimes because he knows it's not what we truly need. It's not. He's not going to answer that prayer because he has something better in mind. He you knows that's not what you need. That doesn't satisfy. That doesn't do the trick. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Notice verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, at this point, it's like Jesus has made his point. I just, Jesus, this is like classic Jesus here in John 6. Like, I I love Jesus for so many reasons. And definitely for this reason here in John 6. Like, at this point, you think, like, okay, the point's clear. He's using this illustration. They need to eat of Jesus. But now he's like, it's my flesh. And the disciples are kind of like, okay, Jesus. They get it. Like, it's almost like Jesus knows it doesn't matter what I say. I could, unless I water this thing down, the, these, the, 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 the religious leaders, they're just going to keep kicking against it. They want nothing to do with this. So instead of holding back, Jesus goes full throttle. Like, instead of let's slow it down, okay, school zone here, all right. Now, Jesus doesn't speed through school zones. That's not true. But, but you know, Jesus starts to, cr- he starts to shift some gears, and, and they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And instead of going, guys, I'm just, listen, it's illustration. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, guys, I'm just, it's like spiritual, you know what I mean? He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food. Notice this. Indeed. Cannibalism. And my blood is, it's what it seems like, is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. And I just picture like a crowd just like a. Just dead quiet. No more questions. Just like. That escalated quickly, you know. Like, like I didn't see this, this coming. He taught these things in the synagogue, but I want you to notice here's where we close out. It says, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said this. Watch this dividing line. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, I mean, this was hard even for his own disciples. He said, does this, does this offend you? And Peter's probably like, a little bit. Like, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Notice this, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. I'm, I, I don't, I'm not promoting cannibalism. It's not. It doesn't, no, no, no. The word. Notice what he says, the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning. He knew from the very beginning. He always knows from the very beginning those who are his followers and those who are just his fans. And it says this, that, uh, there were many who would not believe. In verse 65, he says, Therefore I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted by the Father. And notice this, I don't, it's John 6, 66. I don't think that's weird or anything, it's just unusual. From that time, many of his disciples, notice this, went back. From that time, many of his disciples, thousands maybe, went back and walked with him no more. The crowd thins out. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, I love Peter. Notice this. Where are we going to go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Notice this dividing line over a, a simple statement like Jesus is the bread of life. Who knew that Jesus being the bread of life, what we truly need to get to eternity, would be the very thing in his ministry that thinned out the crowd? That created this dividing line in the sin. Now, I'm sure when Jesus was doing this, the disciples are going, "Jesus, what are you doing?" Like, th- I've been to some church growth, by the way, strategy conferences before. If I got up there and like get a modern modern version of this, people would be like, "You're failing," right? I mean, in, in our day and age, like, isn't bigger better? Isn't more more? Isn't the goal to to get big crowds? And and so what we do today, because we think that's the purpose, is what we do is we 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 take truth that is hard and we tend to water it down to make it more palatable so that people will stay. Why? Because that's how you fill seats. That's how you get a bigger crowd. And here's Jesus and he's like, "No. I love people, but there's a truth to following Jesus. Ready? It's hard." You no matter what we make we make Christianity to be, it's hard. Jesus says you got to enter by the narrow gate. It's hard. Few are going to find it. It's going to get difficult. You're going to get to points in your walk with the Lord where you're going to be like Peter. And you're going to be like, I understand why people are walking away. I'm having some of the same challenges. This is difficult. This is hard. But where do you stand? What side of the line do you end up on, right? Have you tasted and seen that Jesus is so good that despite what you don't know, despite how hard it is, you say like Peter, I, I, there's nowhere else for me to go. doesn't mean I don't have challenges. Doesn't. Mean, by the way, this is a Christian, right? I'm here because Jesus is who he is. Well, what's the answer to this difficult question? And, and what about this problem you're facing? I just have tasted and seen that God is good. And I'm not going anywhere. Salvation, it's easy. It's through trusting in Jesus. But following him, it's hard. There's hard times that we go through, but may we be able to say, like the disciples, Jesus, we've, we've tasted of you. We've tasted your words. We've found who you are. Jesus, you are the bread of life. There is nothing like you. There is no one else that can do for us what Jesus does for us. He goes to the cross so that we can have this hope of eternity forever. That's food worth eating. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.